0: morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. If you want a hard copy of a Bible, we have them in the back. Uh, If you would slip up your hand, our ushers can get them to you if you'd like, if you want a hard copy. If you don't, and you don't have a Bible, but you have a phone, you can simply just Google Luke 12. Believe it or not, if you Google that, You can actually get the Bible online and you can follow along right like that. So that's good, too. If you are new here to Grace Church, or maybe this is your first time here, and you were to go off of the songs we just sang, you would probably arrive at the conclusion that this church really loves Jesus. I hope that you would arrive at that conclusion. Why? Why do we love Jesus? Well, Jesus is God. He He created us. He was responsible for us living in existence. He's when, he, uh, when when God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, took on flesh, he came, he lived among us and controlled everything from the standpoint of he could he could talk to the wind and it would obey him. He could talk to illness and it would go away. He could raise people who were dead and bring them back to life. We love Jesus, not only because he's God, but because he's our Savior. By ourselves, we do what we want. We, we feel like we know what's best. We know how this life can be lived. We know how it should be lived, and we lived it that way. Until God, in his kindness, showed us the love of Jesus Christ. In that while we were his enemies and sinners, Jesus died for us. So that we would no longer pursue our own way that leads to death and hell. But that we could be made new, given new life. We love Jesus also because he was a man. He was a man, or a human being, if I can put it that way. Like you and me. Jesus Christ. As I said before, he's God the Son. But he came and he lived a life here on earth. When he had a hard day's work, he woke up sore. When he worked with wood, probably with his father, the carpenter, he probably got splinters. And they may have gotten infected. When he felt sad, or felt happy, when he had friends... Like you and I, he experienced the same emotions, same feelings that you and I did. We're in the book of Luke because in 2020 we've been studying through the book of Luke, but during the evening. And we're jumping right in the middle of the book, which is not ideal, but we're doing it. Um, When I say jumping in the middle, this is where we are up to this point. At Grace, as Pastor Tim shared in the video earlier, we, we work through books of the Bible. And in the morning services, we've been working through the book of 2 Corinthians. And we're finishing up chapter 4 next week. What we've been doing during our evening times is studying through the Gospel of Luke. This is the third book of the New Testament. And it was written by a man named Luke. That's why they call it Luke but this is part 1 of a part of a two-part series you see luke wrote the gospel of luke but he also wrote the book of acts and in luke you have the story of jesus christ the man the man who was god but the man who offers salvation to all mankind jew and gentile and in this society That Jesus lived in, where you had the haves having and the have nots have noting, (laughs) Jesus offered salvation to all indiscriminately. And in fact, through the Gospel of Luke, we see a pattern of salvation offered to those whose society would have looked at with disdain people who were poor, people who were not men people who were not Jewish. But the part two of the story that Luke is writing has not so much the message of Jesus Christ, or or the person of Jesus Christ, but rather the message of Jesus Christ carried by his followers to Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish faith, but ultimately to the uttermost parts of the world. And once once you get to chapter 28 of Acts... You actually have a man by the name of Paul who was ready to share the gospel in the courts of the most powerful man in the world, Caesar. So, how is it that we get from small town Jewish family to the courts of the most powerful man in the universe? How do we get from this gospel that was available to the Jews? because Jesus was a Jew and because he cared about his own people and because he cared to share it with them? How do we get from there to the gospel being given indiscriminately and ultimately to us? That's what Luke and Acts is about. Now, we are in Luke chapter 12, and in Luke chapter 12, this chapter begins right after a pretty tense relationship with Jesus and Jewish leadership. The Pharisees and the experts of the law. And I say it was a pretty tense interaction. It was a pretty tense relationship because Jesus had been been invited over for lunch, and yet these, it it wasn't, let me just put it this way. Jesus knew their hearts, and he knew that these religious leaders were rejecting him and actually leading others to reject him. And he confronted them and they became angry and upset. And so, at the beginning of chapter 12, we have Jesus leaving this lunch appointment and confronting, oh, just a few people. Let's look at verse 1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. Jesus began saying to his disciples, and, and we'll get into this in just a moment. So Jesus steps out, and there's thousands of people waiting for him. Jesus begins to teach his disciples. And these verses that we're going to be looking at today, verses 1 through 12, are really Jesus' teachings to the disciples about what is required to be a follower of Jesus. If you're on Twitter, and a person has a profile... And maybe their, their profile or their handle says follower of Jesus. Maybe you've seen that before. This passage talks about what is required to be a follower of Jesus. It's not exhaustive. But there are three things that Jesus delineates to his disciples that in order to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus, you must have not because you want to earn the position, but because you are a follower. In other words, these are the outworking of the reality. If a person is a follower of Jesus, this is required of them. But in addition to these requirements, we also have the assurances or the promises that go with those requirements. So let's look at this passage together. What are these requirements that Jesus points out to his disciples? And what does he assure them of if they are to follow Jesus? So let's look at verse 1. Under these circumstances, as we said, so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another. He began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. The first requirement to be a follower of Jesus is to avoid hypocrisy. If you are a follower of Jesus, you must avoid hypocrisy. You say, boy, that's one to start off with. Avoid hypocrisy? Well, we have to understand the context here of who Jesus was talking to and what he was talking about. In fact, I'd like you to look in the previous chapter, starting in verse 39. I told you that Jesus had this lunch appointment with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and Jesus begins to talk with them in verse 39. The Lord said to him, to these Pharisees, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup of the platter. But inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. One of the lawyers or the teachers of the law said to him in reply, "Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, "Woe to you, lawyers as well. For you weigh down men with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build tombs of the prophets as it was, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them, and they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets, shed since the foundation of the world, may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, For You have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. They didn't receive it well. Verse 53, when he left there, the scribes and Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Jesus was condemning them for their hypocrisy. I told you they were at a lunch, and we can imagine Jesus picking up a cup There at lunch and saying, you know, holding the cup up and saying, you're good at washing the outside, but the inside is filled with corruption. Jesus was calling out their hypocrisy. Man might be impressed by their show, but God knows the heart. Now Jesus requires that his followers avoid hypocrisy. But I also said that there are assurances or there's promises that go with these requirements. And the requirement here, avoid hypocrisy, is assured by the fact that you, I'm sorry, that what is inside will inevitably come out. Avoid hypocrisy. Why? Because what is inside will inevitably come out. Look at verse 2 back in Luke 12. There's nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Verses 2 and 3 speak ultimately of final judgment. What is true of what is inside us, or inside man, will be revealed. But, sometimes in this life, men and women are exposed before other men and women as to who they are. Our society loves to pounce on hypocrisy. Loves to pounce on hypocrisy. Our society especially loves to pounce on religious hypocrisy. Just within the last six months, a well-known president of a Christian college, a well-known pastor of a large church-planning movement, falling from grace because of immorality... Making front-page headlines not because necessarily they broke any laws, but because they were hypocrites. Our society loves to pounce on hypo- hy- hypocrites, hypocrisy. What's inside is going to come out. Now, this kind of scares me. First Timothy one fifteen. Paul says. This is a trustworthy saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am not so bad. No. Who I am chief. We say it here often. You may hear it here often. I am the worst sinner I know. And you are the worst sinner you know. What goes on here? What goes on here? Verses 2 and 3. When you crack open a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you know what you find? Maintenance, perseverance, not perfection. There is legal righteousness imputed to our account, but the follower of Christ endeavors to grow in Christ likeness. At some level, we all are hypocrites. We know the shame of being in the workplace wanting to have the testimony but then having the profanity slip out of our mouths. We know the embarrassment of going to our kids' game and losing our our cool because the ref made a bad call. We know what it's like to be invited to a get-together with friends, and then maybe one thing leads to another, and we think back on it with shame. Yet, the Christian... And this is the beautiful part. The Christian can be assured that what is on the inside will come out. We think of that in the negative, but let's think about it in the positive. What is inside is that God changes his followers. He makes them like himself. They grow in Christlikeness so that when what really comes out of the heart of a follower of Jesus Christ is progressive sanctification, Growth in Christ's likeness so that we can see verses 2 and 3 and rejoice, not because we're going to bat a thousand or be perfect every time, but because what will come out is genuine, sincere faith. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you will avoid. You must avoid hypocrisy. Being assured that what is inside will inevitably come out. But Jesus gives another requirement of his disciples. And we see this in verses 4 through 7. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more fear. and, And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. We are required to to avoid hypocrisy if we are to be followers of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we are required to fear God and to not fear men. We are required to fear God and not fear men. Now this is going to be a little meaty, like the milk of the word and the meat of the word, if you're familiar with that verbiage. This next part's going to be a little meaty, but hang with me. When we read in verse 4 do not be afraid, and we read in verse 5 fear the one. In the original language this is what we would call a passive imperative. Okay, Passive, that's like Okay, active versus passive. So active, I hit the ball. Passive, I got hit by the ball. Okay? One I did, one happened to me. Okay? That's passive. Imperative is a command, not just a suggestion, a command. So we have a passive, something that's happening, but a command in that we are to act. How does that work? Told you this was meaty, but stay with me. Wallace, a Greek scholar here, looks at this and sees other passive imperatives as either prohibitions, prohibiting, or commands addressing emotional states. Now when we think of our emotions, a lot of times we think of things that just happen. The Browns won, hooray! We don't have to tell ourselves, be happy. Well, maybe some of you do, okay? (laughs) We think the Browns lost, oh, I'm sad. We think, Pastor Mike brought donuts to Sunday school. Hooray! Happy, right? Unless you're the Sunday school next door that didn't get donuts brought to you. Sad. Those are emotions that just kind of happen, right? Here, we're told fear or do not fear. In other words, do not allow yourself to fear Pointing to a natural tendency that Christians give themselves over to, or could give themselves over to. So in verse 4, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more fear, and after that have no more that they can do. We are not to give ourselves over to fearing those who would destroy the body. That sounds almost impossible. And yet, that's what Christ is commanding his followers. Do not fear. This is an imperative. Do not give yourself over to the fear of those who will destroy the body. Rather, fear God. Now, I want you to play out in your mind for a moment, play out your worst fears by virtue of what you see or what you've seen maybe this past week or what you've read. Let's play these out. What do I mean, play these out? Let's ask the question, and then what? What you saw, what you see, what you feel, that fear, and then what? Okay, fill in that blank. And then what? And fill in that blank. And then what? And from a human standpoint, we inevitably get to death, right? And what Jesus is saying to his followers, do not fear those who will kill the body or who can kill the body. Why not? That doesn't make sense. That's terrible. Why not? because the most they can do is destroy your physical body and they can't do anything more. We sang a mighty fortress is our God. You sang. Verse 4, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abide. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sides. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. His truth is living still. His kingdom is forever. Praise God. This was written by Martin Luther, a reformer, who was in genuine threat of having his body killed. Instead, fear God. And why do we fear God? We fear God. Look at verse 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. You see, a lot of times when we think of this reality, someone dying, someone going to hell, I mean, if we sit there and really think about it, it can bother us. But if we don't, we can, as Christians, many times just kind of pass this off, especially when it comes to ourselves. Fear God because he can cast people to hell. Well, that's not me. I'm a Christian, and so. And this is a fear that sometimes, many times, can be too easily dismissed. Remember back in chapter 11? Remember what Jesus said to these religious leaders? Six different times he says woe, woe, woe. He's talking to people who were dismissing this fear. Why? Because they felt they were righteous. And yet they were hypocrites. When Jesus says woe, that's the opposite of blessed. You know, like the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, blessed is the man, that speaks of divine favor. Woe speaks of divine wrath. And what we as Christians must do as followers of Jesus Christ, what we must do is swap our tendency for fear. What we tend to do is dismiss the eternal damnation stuff because it might be a long way out. And frankly, it's not very concrete. But what I see on my screen or what I read or those things, I can really fear. What Jesus wants us to do is really swap those out. Fear God who holds souls and has authority over them. And man who can kill your body and that's all he can do? Don't fear them. Now, remember, each requirement of following Jesus Christ comes with an assurance, right? Comes with a promise. If you're a follower of Jesus, he requires you to fear God and not fear men because you can be assured that this same infinite God offers you his intimacy and comfort. The same infinite God that holds souls in authority offers intimacy and comfort. Look at verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. God cares about what's trivial or what might seem trivial or small. God cares so much. Verse 7. Indeed, the very head I'm sorry, indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows you better than you know yourself. God knows you better than anyone knows you. Even down to the number of hairs on your head. Some of us, that's an easier feat for God to count than others, but we'll just kind (laughs) of let that lie, okay? God knows you. He is intimately aware of you. And he says, do not fear You are more valuable than many sparrows. He values you. Now, this part is rich. Because he's talking to the disciples. And he's telling them, do not fear the one who will kill the body. And he shares his intimacy. He shares his knowledge. He wants them to be comforted. He wants them to, to enjoy that relationship, knowing full well that in not too long, they're going to be in Gethsemane. And they're going to be confronted with someone who would kill the body. And what do they do? They bail, they fail. They feared the one who killed or could kill the body, and they abandoned Jesus Christ. Jesus knew that. He knew that he was going to give his life. He also knew that the disciples needed this comfort. Even in their failures, they're followers of Jesus Christ. They will persevere and grow. And he will love them. And he welcomes their request for forgiveness. He welcomes the follower of Jesus when the follower of Jesus comes broken, saying, I sinned, forgive me. Even after the 15,000th time, he welcomes that. We praise God for that. So if you're a follower of Jesus, he requires that you avoid hypocrisy because you can be assured that what is inside will inevitably come out. If you're a follower of Jesus, you must fear God and not fear man, being assured that our infinite God offers you his infinite mercy. And finally, if you are a follower of Jesus, you must publicly profess Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. And I say to you, Everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you will speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The follower of Jesus Christ must publicly profess Christ. And you can see how this is closely related to the previous point, do not fear men. right? Isn't that perhaps the biggest obstacle to publicly professing Jesus Christ? Because we fear men. And there are two public sp- responses to Jesus Christ. And this actually is a theme that kind of plays out through Luke. You have the wise man who built his house upon the rock, the foolish man built his house upon the sand. right? Two options. You have other who strayed at his gate narrows the way, That leads to life. But then you have broad as the way that leads to destruction. So there's two ways to live. Here, Luke repeats this theme. There's really two ways of life. Either to confess, to publicly profess Jesus Christ as Lord, or to deny or disown him. Now, there's two things I want to address in these verses. This word confess, in verse 8, I say to you, everyone who confesses me, this word confess is necessarily verbal necessarily verbal. Disciples of Jesus must speak, must communicate of their love for Christ and their allegiance to him. They must. We know this not only from the word confess, but we also know this from verse 11 and 12. Verse 11, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. A follower of Jesus Christ will speak of their fellowship, of their discipleship. This is a requirement. It's not one just for the people who are good at speaking or who are better with their words. And I want to use just a point of comparison, and I'm not trying to be harsh or critical when I use this, but, but I want us to think this through as far as the logic. If Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, if he is the most important person to us, if we sing songs that pledge our love for him, I've had the privilege of being able to officiate a number of weddings. And when I've done those weddings, you know, there's lots of different people that get married. Some are loud, gregarious. They have, you know, fun personalities. Some more quiet. Just... Some of you, I've had the privilege of being able to officiate your weddings. I've yet to have a bride or groom get to the point where, when it's time to say their vows, I've yet to have a bride or groom say, They know how I feel. (laughs) That would be awkward. When you say your vows, right? Even if you can't remember them, that's fine. That's why guys like me read them, so, and they read them in nice short phrases so you can remember them. Because you're standing in front of your you're nervous, uh, you know, and it's, you give the vows. But you give the vows. You say them. Are you, telling them. are you telling that person anything they don't know already? No. But you're saying them. And to not say them would kind of beg the question. I've also not had a husband or a future husband, future bride, I've never had them say, we have our vows, but we, can we go do them in private? <laughs> the audience might think something's not right. Why? Because isn't that the whole point of the vows? To say them and to say them publicly? Regardless how comfortable you are, this is kind of a big deal, Right? Your fellowship of Jesus Christ is a big deal. Amen. And this world who does not know him, how else will they hear, Romans 10 says, unless there is a proclaimer. Not just a preacher behind the box, but a proclaimer. Verse 9 of Luke 12 says... But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. This word deny, some of your translations may have the word disown. And it stands in opposite of confess. In other words, the pattern of your life is going to either be confession or denial. Professing Christ as Savior, and it's going to be reflected both in actions and words, or denial. Now, remember, each requirement comes with an assurance. We've said that up to this point. This requirement, public profession of Jesus Christ also comes with the assurance. And actually, this one comes with two. First of all, if you publicly profess Christ, you can be assured that when you do, Christ will publicly profess you. That's the first one. We see that at the end of verse 8. Everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. Now, admittedly, this is one of those promises that if you're reading this, it may not, I mean, it sounds like a big deal, but honestly, it, it may not sound as big of a deal. I want you to think, though, and maybe this is more helpful, I want you to think of the context where these disciples and where this story is taking place in, in the Middle East, and in particular, what was common in the Middle East and the Far East, and that is the honor-shame paradigm. You know, the whole, in our society, you do you is kind of like the mantra. Be your own person. Stand up for your truth. Speak your truth. Okay. That was completely foreign in this context. Honor was found in community. Honor was found in being able to do something or be successful. And in turn, the family, the community would have been honored. Conversely, or... In other words, the, other, the opposite of that would be if you did something to dishonor, it wasn't just on you, it was on your family, friends, this and the other. So here you have Jesus confessing to the heavenly host, this one's mine. Is there anything greater? Is there any greater honor? For a moment. Turn a couple pages back to Luke 9. Verse 23. Jesus was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Look at verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Is there greater honor than to be confessed by Christ to the heavenly host? But is there greater shame than to have him deny you? Do you fear that? The follower of Jesus Christ has assurance of salvation. We have the promise that he will not abandon us, that nothing will separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. But let's take this seriously. And not just gloss over it. We have the assurance that Christ will publicly profess. But the second assurance we have, going back to Luke chapter 11. The second assurance we have is that the Holy Spirit will instruct you in the time of need. Publicly profess Christ, being assured that the Holy Spirit will instruct you. Verse 11. Luke 12. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak. And isn't that what we worry about? When we're given opportunity to speak, what do I say? And then, okay, I know what to say, but I don't know how to say it, this. Don't worry, Jesus says to these disciples. And they're going to be called before authorities, both Jew and Gentile. Do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say for the holy spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say there's an assumption that the disciples would give a defense a defense of their faith in christ but others would know they have a faith in christ by their words and their works and in giving a defense they would need to speak and the holy spirit would instruct them on when instruct them when they're under pressure now this isn't a pass on on us not preparing as Christians. In fact, I would encourage you maybe, if, if you write in your Bibles Luke 11 and 12, I would encourage you maybe off into the margin to write Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 7, where Paul gives instruction about how the Colossian believers can pray for him when he had opportunity to defend in the gospel. And I would say how we can prepare, how we pray, how we plan in giving the gospel. This isn't just a pass of, well, God's just going to tell me what to say and in the moment I'll be alright. No. We need to think ahead. We need to be thinking of those who God would have us profess the gospel to. You know, if, if you're out in the lobby currently right now, or here in the auditorium, when you go out into the lobby, there's, there's easels. And on those easels, there's a bunch of cards. Did you see those coming in? You see those? Okay. You know what those cards are from? Those are thank you cards in response to our church writing thank you cards to the staff of the mentor schools. If you have the chance, read through those. And the impact, I mean, we've gotten several dozen. This past week, I got about one to two emails a day just from teachers, staff members, thank you so much. This was an encouragement. What we did as a church, expressing our thanks for their work as staff members in this crazy 2020. But a PTO could have done the same thing. A non-Christian group could have done what we did. We did this not as a bait-and-switch. There's a sincere, thankful heart that we have. But to what end? If that's where we leave it, then what? Throughout this time, I've encouraged, I've asked some of you, how many of you know a staff member in the mentor school system? You've raised your hand. Okay, we have set the table in giving thanks to them for what they've done. Hopefully, it allows for a stronger relationship. Praise God for that. But to what end? We can have years and years and years and watching games or going to school events or or you know driving together or, or working alongside or open gym or whatever. Years and years and years of relationship. But if we don't open our mouths about who the most important person is in our life, shame on us. If not now, when? When? I professed my love to my wife, and she professed her love to me. Some of you saw that. That's natural. But that's going to end when she dies or I die or Jesus comes. What isn't going to end is my relationship with my Savior. Amen. How much more so ought we to publicly profess? For some, that starts in baptism. If you know the Lord, your Savior, and you've yet to publicly identify in baptism... 2021 is the year. And we'll praise God for it. And we'll keep praying for more souls to hear the gospel as a result of your profession of faith. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will avoid, you will, we must avoid hypocrisy, being assured that what is inside will come out. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you must fear God and not fear men, being assured that our infinite God offers you his infinite mercy. And, comfort. and if you are a follower of Jesus, then he requires that you publicly profess Jesus Christ. Because you can be assured that when you do, Christ will profess you one day. And the Holy Spirit will instruct you when you speak the gospel to others. Now with this, I close. Verse 1. There are thousands of people that are listening to Jesus say this. But he's saying it to his disciples. It stands the reason that those thousands of people, not all of them were born again. And maybe that's you this morning. You're hearing of all of these requirements for being a follower of Jesus Christ, and you yourself aren't. But you've seen someone in your life who is. Maybe this is all starting to make sense. Maybe this is all starting to hit close to home. Can I encourage you? Talk to that person. Why are they a follower of Jesus Christ? Or talk to me or one of the pastors. Come, be a follower of Jesus Christ. Follow him. It will cost you your life. Let's not make any bones about that. It will cost you everything, but you will get everything. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who was patient with these disciples. When he foresaw their failure, he yet still provided comfort when he saw that there would be times where they would not live in agreement with their profession, yet knowing that the one who began a good work in them would perform it until the day of his appearing. So Lord, we ask that Jesus, that he would come quickly. But in the meantime, may we be faithful as his disciples, as his followers. And Lord, if there are any here that don't know Christ, that aren't his followers, would today be the day where they turn from their sin, their slavery to their own selves, and become sons and daughters of God. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.